0: Hey, what's up, storytellers? If you'd love to know how to support 88 Cups of Tea, I would love it if you would help our show with a financial gift. 88 Cups of Tea has brought soul-stirring conversations and stories to your weekly routine from V.E. Schwab's episode that helped many of you through depression, to Lee Bardugo's episode that fired you up about the writing process, and Stephanie Garber's episode that made you feel less alone about your writing struggles, to Jeff Zentner's episode that empowered you to carve out time around a full-time job to write your story, and so many more episodes like the ones with to Tahir, Sarah J. Mass, Victoria Aveyard, Marie Lu, Kirsten White, Jerry Spinelli, and tons more. 88 cups of tea is independently produced and to be fully transparent it takes a lot of time hard work and money to produce but I continue to produce it because I've seen how much this community matters to you and hearing directly from many of you about how we've made you feel less alone really makes me want to continue providing this space I believe the community we've created matters and the stories from the people we highlight matters just as much I've been so proud to work with the sponsors we've had, but it's not always consistent as I make it a point to only work with those who align with our message, which limits the kinds of brands and companies we work with. The other times the podcast is produced out of our savings and honestly, those savings can only go so far. I'm really hoping for 88 Cups of Tea to become sustainable and support itself so I can continue to produce our podcast and provide the community that comes along with the show. Many of you have written to me about those aha moments or those light bulb moments and even life-changing epiphanies and how much our episodes have helped you through some pretty rough times. For our long-time listeners, I have to thank each and every one of you who've been so encouraging about pushing me to set up a donation option and putting it out there. I produce each episode with a lot of love and care and pour my soul into our community so you have a space to root for each other every single day. When you contribute a financial gift, this also helps our whole community of storytellers. If you'd love to make a special donation to keep 88 Cups of Tea going strong, please head over to 88cupsoftea.com support for all the best ways to help sustain us, including options of monthly or a one-time contribution. You'll also get a birthday shout out in the episode that releases during your birthday week. So be sure to let me know when your birthday is. The most sincerest thank you in advance for listening and contributing. Now on to the next part of our intro, a special thank you to our listener, Mickey707, who recently left a five-star rating and wrote the following on Apple Podcasts. For someone who's new to podcasts and the different audio mediums, this is the best possible introduction. Even if I don't know the creative genius being interviewed, by the time I finish the episode, I want to learn and usually read even more about them and their works and passions. As an active reader, imagineer, and shameless fanfiction reader, this podcast goes perfect with a cup of tea in the morning for breakfast or on my drive to or from work. Seriously recommend. Wow. Thank you so much for taking the time to write that review. I'm so happy to hear that you're listening to the episodes during breakfast and we're keeping you company on the way to and from work. So that's pretty cool. I am so happy to have you in our community and good luck with all things creative. Now, onto today's conversation, we have Rachel Heng on the show with us. Rachel is a Singaporean novelist and short story writer. Her debut novel, Suicide Club, A Novel About Living, will be published next Tuesday, July 10th. An early congratulations and happy book birthday to Rachel. Her fiction has received a Pushcart Prize special mention, Prairie Schooner's Jane Gesky Award, and has been recommended by the Huffington Post nylon book riot and the independent recently featured rachel in the article titled the emerging authors to look out for in 2018 in this episode we discuss how rachel's writing career developed as she started writing on the side during her full-time job in london and how she made the transition to pursue an mfa writing program after six years at her full-time job our conversation really focuses on rejections and how to turn it into a motivating and productive tool Her stories blew me away. She's had over 300 rejections for her short story and shares how she turned her discouragement from nearly two years of rejections into a productive opportunity to push herself to try something different by taking a novel writing class. We then get into a deep dive talk about everything MFA related from how her first year has been and how it's evolved her writing to the process of finding the right MFA program for yourselves. Rachel does not hold back on all the advice and tips she's learned from her own experiences with rejection and getting into an MFA and she's so generous to pass on all her wisdom including some seriously incredible querying advice. Now let's jump right in. We mentioned a little bit before that we've already had our community who have requested for you on the show. And I'm so thankful that they did. And I got to do a little bit of stalking and research you. And I just already automatically fell head over heels. And I'm like, I need to be friends with Rachel. (laughs) And I was so thankful that you ended up accepting our invitation to be on the show. So thank you so much for your time. Let's get in a little bit about your background first. When did you fall in love with storytelling and how did that come
1: about? okay well firstly thank you so much for having me on the show I mean I'm so happy to meet you over the phone and yeah I've been kind of stalking your website as well I can't wait to listen to all of the podcasts. thank you but um yeah so it's, it's really I'm really glad to be here I guess a bit more about me so I grew up in Singapore and I left when I was about 18 for college and I never thought I would you know write fiction I guess Growing up, my family had quite sort of, or not just my family, but all of Singapore, quite practical-minded. So you know you a job support your family and I didn't know any writers in like the arts were not presented as a viable option yeah. for my life. And even if you know like when I was a kid and I liked reading, adults would tell me, Well you like reading, you should be a lawyer maybe <laughs> or I like to draw and they were like, oh how about architect and okay? yeah <laughs> So that was kind of the you know that was the that was what I grew up with. So I never even considered it really even though I, I love books and I love reading and I spent you know I was that kid like when my mom wanted to punish me when I was young she would take away my toys or like sweets or anything she would take away my books and it was the saddest thing ever she wanted to throw away a book it was well she pretended to throw it away and it was one of the most (laughs) traumatic memories of my life but anyway so i never used to even though i love reading i never wrote i only started writing fiction very late in life i graduated from college in the u.s and then i was on a scholarship from the singapore government so i went back to work for them in singapore and then i was working for them in london for the Sovereign Wealth Fund, so doing something totally different. It was kind of corporate and financy and just very you know, it was just nothing to do with with writing at all. Mm. Um, and I started writing in London in about mid twenty fourteen mm-hmm. when I I mean I didn't know anyone and I didn't have that many friends. I just moved to a new city, I was kind of lonely and like this was something that my husband had been telling me I should do since college. Essentially um in like 2009 or something he was like when a year after we met he was like you should be a fiction writer and I was like what are you talking about I just (laughs) I couldn't people don't become fiction writers that's not Mm -hmm. a thing you can do um but over the years he sort of had been wearing me down and it was only you know like six five six years later when I was in London I was alone I was slightly depressed you know I didn't really know what I was doing my life and he was like, remember, I said you should write fiction. And I kind of just started writing for NaNoWriMo, actually. Oh, really? Oh, my God. You did that, too? <laughs> yeah, I think that oh was kind gosh. of the entry into it. And I was like, oh, it seems I work really well with frameworks. I'm very Singaporean in that way. So <laughs> like NaNoWriMo framework was to me. I was like, oh, OK, I just have to write like, what, 1,700 words a day. I think it was 1,700. You know, they have this thing where you can like enter your word count and like the bar goes up and it's really satisfying. <laughs> so that's how I started writing. But obviously fail miserably because when you start writing, you know, the very first thing you start writing is like a novel when you have no outline and you're trying to pound it out at like or pace. Yeah. It's really, really hard. And I was just, you know, like really basic things like how to do characterization or like, you know, even like, oh, you don't need to follow your character when they go from one room to another in the, in the hallway, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's like just not interesting details. <laughs> um, so just really basic things about like fiction writing, which I had to learn. Um, and that you think as someone who reads a lot, you know, you would know all of that intuitively, but you don't. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, but then it got me really hooked onto kind of writing fiction in general. And I started doing short stories. Um, after that, I, I had written half of a failed novel, um, kind of put that aside and then went on to short fiction, which I was doing for a couple of years, Um, And then eventually I got, I don't know how it, yeah, it was one of those things that was just sort of slow and steady over time. And before you know it, you're completely addicted. And like, if you don't do it, you get really upset. (laughs) So, um, so I was writing a lot of short fiction and then decided that I wanted to try a novel again a couple of years later And I had signed up to this writing course that took place in the evenings. It was at Faber Academy. And that's kind of a, it's like the creative writing school of the publisher Faber and Faber. And that's in London. So I started doing that. And on that class, I started writing the book that would become Suicide Club. Uh, That was kind of late 2015. So that's kind of how I came to, I don't know. Maybe I answered the oh, question. No, I love this. You, by the way, I
0: hope you don't mind. I'm going to be like unpacking a lot because there's just so much goodness that you gave us so much gold material over there. First of all, I'm like, in my brain,
1: no, no, hour. no, I, no,
0: this is perfect. Cause then it fits right <laughs> along with my personality too. Cause I can go on, trust me. So <laughs> thank you for going into that. No, I love it when our guests end up sharing more, because for me, that's so enjoyable. It feels so much like we're like old friends reconnecting or something. So I, oh, if you don't mind, I'm going to end up unpacking a lot, yes. okay? Because I love all of this because there's so much I want to ask now. I'm like, my brain is formulated. I'm like, oh, which question <laughs> should I start with? So first of all, I just want to also let everybody know that you are very, very humble. I love how you're like, oh, I came to the U.S. and then got my, got my bachelor's. All right, this girl came to the U.S. and went to Columbia freaking University with a <laughs> B.A. in comparative literature. And so society. Talk about me stalking, okay? So I'm like, (laughs) yours... You are so humble, okay? First of all, so I want to say that you are a badass. I love how you literally just were like, yeah, I just came here and got my degree. Like, oh my gosh, you know how hard for me to be here? I was born and raised in New York, and my mom gave me hell and a half because I ended up going to a city school, a CUNY Mm -hmm. university, and my mom's like, if I had the opportunities you had, I came all the way here from Malaysia, and I was able to get accepted to NYU. What is wrong with you? Okay, trust me. (laughs)
1: Trust me, okay? My mom gave me a hell and (laughs) a half. My mom was disappointed because I didn't get into Stanford and Yale. So, you know, it's like it's never good enough. Whatever you do. I was like mom, we're going to Columbia. She's like, I've never heard of it. What's in this <gasps> Columbia? Are you I'm serious? Know the Harvard, yeah. I'm like, okay, okay, oh,
0: mom, all no. right. Cool. Oh my god! I hope your mom knows now that Columbia is freaking amazing, and it is one of the most difficult schools to get into. And I'll tell you right now, yeah, she's still sleeping. Oh, you, you know what, you, you're, Rachel? Your mom needs to talk to my mom then, because I was going to say if it makes you feel better, my mom would have been so proud of you if you were her daughter oh. telling her that you got into Columbia. <laughs> my mom would have cried out of happiness. So, if anything, oh. I think our parents should. Be be grabbing lunch or dinner too at a, yes. at a malaysian restaurant okay yeah, I, so um but let me i i'll be the one to say that you are badass and you came here and freaking went to colombia and did your thing um and then you went and freaking worked in the corporate world in london like what the hell like you you just <laughs> your brain is just so you're so smart oh my gosh okay so now i just had to just say that um before i start unpacking okay so you'll notice i like to do a lot of side commentary but also I completely understand about what you said earlier, super earlier, where very good point because that's what I found interesting too, specifically because you are born and raised in Singapore and that you had a love for storytelling, but you didn't pursue it till much later because it's true. And this is what um, our listeners know too, that they've heard episodes where I've talked about this, especially with guests who are Asian um, uh, or Asian American or came from Asia. This is the thing that we all have in common where we understand where we were raised, where education is number one. Arts, arts is completely like, Oh great, honey, you got a hobby. (laughs) Wonderful. That's if we're lucky. Exactly. It's like, don't waste your time on that. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, like my dad, he's Taiwanese, okay? So my dad, he's like uh, acting, okay? That's a hobby, all right? Let her go play. Like he will <laughs> use the word play, right? As long and, as it doesn't interfere with her schoolwork. Exactly. And forget about it. When I came home telling my mom and my dad, after I did one play in high school, I was like, mom, dad, I want to be an actor. Oh, hell no. I thought oh. I was going to get beat till so I couldn't <laughs> see the living daylight. My mom was like, excuse me, What? She thought... I was joking or trying to give her a heart attack. It was oh, a no. debate. It was like almost World War III. My oh, no. grandpa had to step in. And this is a rare thing where I'm very lucky, okay? Grandpa's from Malaysia, Penang. He is an artist. So oh. this is a very rare thing. Like this barely ever happens. He made his whole living as an artist. He taught at University of Michigan, and Arbor, and NYU. He oh, went back. Yeah, it, I mean, it's pretty badass to make money from a paintbrush when you think about it, right? Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Because he's an artist, he stood up for me and told my mom, who was his daughter, and said... You better let her do what she was born to do and give her opportunity. If it doesn't work out, then at least she knows she tried and will never have regrets at the end of her life. And I was like, well, I'm so this never happened. So I'm okay. very freaking lucky that I even had a grandpa who would stand up for me, especially someone who was born and raised in a country where that's not really acceptable either socially, you yeah. know, where they're like, what? Why aren't you doing doctors or whatever?
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm going to become an artist and 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 then make it to the US, and then get to the level where he's like teaching at amazing universities. That's like, yeah, that that is someone who really cares about their art. Yeah.
0: See, and it's inspiring for me too. Where I'm like, okay, if Grandpa can do it against all these things, right? And I don't even have as much societal pressures as he does. There's no excuse for me. I'm just grateful I have an opportunity to do me. For you growing up in Singapore, I'm curious how your parents, especially your mom, took that. Like, how how were they when you were like, you know what? I'm writing a novel or I'm writing short stories. I'm doing this. What was their reaction?
1: Well, I've been, so I, I had a job in London and I was living in the UK. And I was kind of writing on the side and getting like small publications and journals and things like that. And then getting the novel done and then being approached by agents. And so kind of everything happened while I had this full time job. My mom knew that I was writing, but she was kind of like, oh, yeah, she's doing this thing. You know? Oh, like so she thought it was like a hobby. <laughs> yeah, she thought it was a hobby. Exactly. And then it got to the point where I was like, oh, I'm going to apply to MFA programs. And I told her I was going to apply to MFA programs. And she literally let out this wail. She was like, but why? Why are you? and she's like why can't you just keep writing while you because she knew i was pretty serious about writing but she was like why can't you just keep doing it while you keep your job you know why do you have to leave your job to do this like you have a great career and like you know it's financial stability and you know what are you going to do at like a writing program and like you know you're taking like years out of whatever you've built up working in this different industry but i mean at that point i was like 20 28 So, you know, it was was kind of at the point where I was an independent adult and I was like, well, I'm just going to do this. (laughs) And she was like, you know, I think she she kind of in a way given up and she also saw that you know i really cared about it and i've been working for six years like i had a decent amount of experience on my resume i was financially independent and so, right. it so got, she really I,
0: couldn't say much in the end yeah yeah mm-hmm. she's like
1: well you know you do you like i would not condone this but you are no longer a child so that was kind of her attitude and then when i sold the book she was really excited about that Aww, um, I- was real sort of affirmation, like it wasn't yes. just like, oh, I'm going off to pursue this like wild goose chase um, and just like quit my job, you know, go do like an arts degree. It was like, oh, you know, look, I've actually managed to complete a book. Like people want to publish it, and you know, it looks like it's something that I can actually do. Then she, I mean, she did make a joke. She was like, well, you know, I read somewhere that Obama just sold his book for thirty three million dollars. Why is your advance so low? Is it because you? And I was like, oh god, mom, like seriously. <laughs> like you're comparing me to obama you're like why doesn't your book sell for as much as obama's that takes you know this kind of asian parenting to a new level <laughs> okay i'll
0: interject right here for our listeners to understand that so listeners i know y'all have heard me talk about my growing up with my parents and how they were raising me and the similarities between our parents in the asian culture I do want to clarify that it's all out of love and now this is me to you rachel like there's a lot of american because i have a lot of friends right who are caucasian and they're like what why is your mom or dad bossing you around it's your life even though you're still like let's say even if you're living right even if you're like living in their home still you know Mm -hmm. when you're younger the caucasian friends are still like so what it's your life do what you want i'm like listen bitch (laughs) who's paying your bill your mom and daddy right at least have some respect over here so our parents do this out of love and you know, everybody's parents are different, but I do believe the common core is out of love. And truly a lot of times it's out of fear because they want to make sure that we're able to survive and basically be comfortable mm. and not suffer. Because that's something that my mom always yeah. said growing up. She's like, I don't want you to suffer. Because she's gone through things where, you know, we would consider suffering as, for example, like American kids would be like, oh my God, I wouldn't be able to handle that kind of situation. Where my mom and her sisters, my aunts, had to do that. You know, like they had to do what they had to do to survive and live and grow up. And especially coming to America when they mm. they didn't have an, an American citizenship yet. They had a yeah. lot of things that were up against them, you know, and they didn't have a lot of privilege that, for example, I had growing up. So this is all out of love where our parents want us to survive and and also live comfortably, um, basically yeah. give us a better future than what they had.
1: Absolutely. I mean, if your mom is living in Malaysia, when, you know, I mean, if she grew up in Malaysia, then she, I don't know, had she been through, did she go through World War II or does she remember it, or post-war? I think her, her mom
0: definitely went through it and told her yes. stories. Because yes. um, I remember there was a Japanese soldier that actually saved my grandma and hid her in a room oh. so she wouldn't be found, which is surprising because my great-grandma, yes. like, yes. has Horror the stories, yes, and even <laughs> till her death. She couldn't stand Japanese people anymore, and I was like, "My grandma's actually yes, yeah. because there's so many." She doesn't buy- I can understand that, you know, where I'm just like, they've done so much and they witnessed so much and they saw their loved ones getting murdered and raped and killed. Some people can never find that forgiveness. But for me, I grew up with Japanese best friends. And oh, my Lord, my great grandma was like, like, I thought that I was going to kill her just by having best friends that were Japanese, you know, and I wasn't yeah. aware of what had happened until later on. I looked it up and I was like, oh, I get where your hate comes from. But also I was trying to tell her the younger generation, they didn't these crimes you know these yeah. are kids that you know they probably don't even know because their ancestors probably don't even want them to know this history yeah I mean this is a thing like definitely our our parents are doing this so that when they pass they know that their kids are going to be okay even though it's definitely a different way of showing it than most yeah. other
1: cultures I mean to your point, a lot of it has to do with kind of Economic privilege, right? Because right. if you think about it, like my, my, if you look at how Singapore's developed in the last like 50 years, um, you know, my mom grew up extremely poor. Like they, they were a family of like six and they would live in a house with like three other families and like share one room. And, you know, it was like there were times when they didn't have enough to eat and it was just completely, it's a different world entirely. Coming from that, I mean, when you're growing out of a place which doesn't have running water or like, I don't know, just a completely different situation. And then being in a country that develops economically so quickly to like what it is today. On one hand it's like it's easy to forget that things used to be so different so mm-hmm. i mean i i totally understand why the previous generation feels that way and why they kind of have that sort of response when you say i want to be an artist they're like how yes. are you going to eat? you know it's very practical whereas yes. like coming in the u.s obviously it's totally different where like that's seen as a totally viable path because it is because it has been economically prosperous for like so long I love that you
0: went into that, by the way. I really appreciate that because that's something I don't think I went into in other... I think I kind of tapped on it, but not in that detail. So I appreciate your perspective on that too. Yeah. I do want to segue into your writing because there was something that I read. I think it was The Straits Times. And mm-hmm. The Straits Times for Singapore is... I just want to let the listeners know this is something that's like New York Times. It's like massive. Um, So <laughs> first of all, congratulations <laughs> on that. Uh, this is very prestigious. So most of our community... A lot of our listeners, they usually turn into the episodes and the podcast and they say what they get from it that hits close to home. Always the stories where they hear from the guests, the hardships that they've gone through and the the times that were rough, because that is what they find that they go through a lot right now, especially because there's some now that are published, which I'm so proud of, there's a lot too that have yet to be published and want to go on that journey and that route. But then for them, they hit points of depression. They also hit points of a lot of rejection. And when they hear stories of authors that they admire on the show, like you, and then they see that you're already published and hear similar stories that you've gone through, it gives them the inspiration and the hope to keep going. So I did read that you, uh, you were quoted saying that you are used to massive rejection. You submitted Mm -hmm. about like 200 short stories to publications and got six acceptances. Do you mind going into that a little bit more? Cause I know that's going to really, really provide a lot of inspiration to, to our listeners. Thank you so much.
1: This is something. I mean, I, I talked to a lot of people about it, and there was this great article on LitHub a while ago. It was like you should aim for. They're 100 great. LitHub is awesome. Did you see that? The idea is that you should be putting yourself out there, and like the literary world is so much about rejection that you just kind of have to get used Do to it. Do you remember
0: the article uh, title by any chance? Because I'm gonna link it on your show notes page for anybody who wants extra inspiration.
1: Aim for 100 rejections a year. Okay, I'm looking. Oh yeah, I'll, I'll text it to you. Thank I'll, you. I'll email it. So that that article is now out of date. I have now been rejected over 300 times. (laughs) Oh, wow. That's amazing. Uh, So just to clarify, it's not that I have written 200 or 300 stories. It's just that my stories have been rejected that many number of times. And it's mainly because I submit a lot to literary journals. And as you know, you know, it's like if you think about the odds of getting published in a lit journal, it's like Mm -hmm. it gets put out, you know, say if you're lucky four times a year, you know, each issue will have like maybe two or three short stories in it. And they literally get full of submissions. So it makes sense. You know, I mean, when it's easy when you're starting out to take it really personally and you're like, oh, you know, I've been getting, you know, I've gotten 20 rejections on this story. Um, but then, you know, it it, it could part of it. it okay, I don't want to say like it has nothing to do with the quality of the story, because some stories I know I need to edit and like mm. if it's been rejected that many times I'm like, there's something that's not quite sticking. If you don't get a single sort of personal rejection or personal note, then I'm like, well, maybe there's something that's not working here, um, you know, that I need to rework and then I go work on it. But then other times it's so hard to say because, um, it could have just, it it could just be something to do with like the timing of the issue, what they're trying to achieve in like curating that issue. It could be that they've had like five stories with a similar topic that they read, you know, or there's just so many factors. And I think you know, the quality of the story is just one small part of it. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, I know it's difficult not to like conflate rejection with sort of like failure or, you know, tying it to your self-worth. But that was something that, you know, I had to learn early on um, and I still struggle with it. I mean, I still get rejected a lot, even though I, I have a book out and like um, people who have do have book outs will know that it doesn't end there. The rejection continues. <laughs> like, right. can't, disappointments waiting for you even amazing as it is it's just kind of you know, the reality is it's it's a crowded marketplace and you know there are just lots of amazing books out there and some things don't get the attention that yours want them to but um so on the short stories I started writing short stories in like 20 20- 2014 and I got one story that was accepted really quickly when I started and that gave me a lot of encouragement but then I had nothing accepted for a year and a half after that oh wow okay gotcha yeah that was a low for me because I had just started I was like well maybe my writing just sucks you know I have no track record I don't know like no one I had that one story except maybe that was a fluke and like everything else right
0: you start because I was gonna say my god in a way it's like a catch-22 it almost set you up where you're almost expecting like oh it's gonna be like this and then boom right and then you start doubting yourself like wait Mm -hmm. but uh, it's a year oh gosh that is so scary that reminds me of um, auditions too if you book one thing and the first thing you book right out the gate as an actor right but then Mm -hmm. you go on you hear actors don't have work for years then you start doubting yourself and you start it eats at you so so
1: I completely yeah. feel you I'm yeah. um, sorry and yes that's around that's probably around the time that I actually signed up for that novel writing class when I started writing Susan, because I was so discouraged that you know my short stories weren't getting like any traction at all that I, I was like, okay, well, I'll switch gears and I'll do, like, novels instead and maybe I'll take this class and maybe it'll help. But I hadn't gotten an acceptance for, like, yeah, a year and a half, almost two years, and it was just constant rejection. I think I accumulated, like, a hundred rejections in that period, and it was just, yeah, it was quite painful. And then eventually it just started happening. And what was strange was, like, one of my stories that had been rejected, I think, like, 26 or 27 times, so almost 30 times, eventually got picked up by a prairie schooner, which is, like, an amazing that I love. Congratulations. Um, Thank you. And then they nominated it for a push cut and it, <gasps> it didn't get a push cut, but it got a special mention, which was, you know, so it just shows Excuse how, me, it got nominated, okay? That's amazing. Yeah, Congratulations it, again. <laughs> yeah, and eventually, and, and it made the shortlist. So, you know, and then eventually that was the story that I put in my writing sample that got me into the Missioner Center um, and Iowa and several other fully funded programs. So it's so hard to say, you know, a story that gets rejected 27 times, I could easily have said, okay, I guess this is just not a good story. But True. there's so many other factors involved that I'm really glad that I kind of pushed through and I kept submitting it and I kept editing it and I just you know kind of didn't give up on it because it was a story that meant a lot to me and like I cared about it. So eventually, that ended up being the story that got the most prizes and got oh, me into like okay. programs and so on. So yeah, that's my yeah message. Rachel, I, I
0: have to say I have goosebumps all over my arms right now because of how inspiring that was. I just want to let you know. that was freaking motivating and I love that you're also giving us examples of well number one that that short story that you said that went through the 27 rejections Uh, Mm -hmm. hello talk about inspiration number two uh, the fact that you also shared about the different factors of why it could not be accepted at that time it could possibly be like you mentioned oh maybe they already had four other similar stories before you Um, Mm -hmm. so maybe it's just not the right timing or something something and it may not have anything to do with the quality of your writing at all and there's yep. all these different things working around it and and this is going to make people realize oh at least i don't have to take it so personally just keep going and that's why i love that you brought up that LitHub article just see it like numbers, just see it yep. like a number it's game crazy. and maybe that would help. So yep. can I dive in a little bit deeper about mindset? Now, the mindset sure. I know that you were saying is very difficult. Um And and also, I also want to give your husband props Um also <laughs> for encouraging you and pushing you to go towards this route Um and also being there because I do believe and this is something I've talked about on the show before and I'll say it again, is that. I really believe no matter how independent one person is, whoever you bring into your close circle, like your your significant other, it does make a difference. They can either tear you down, or lift you up and believe in yourself. And I'm Mm -hmm. so, I love it when I hear stories like yours, where your husband is that life partner who pushes you along the way and has helped you to find your calling in a way that that makes you happy. Even if they're, you know, the rejections are incredibly difficult, but the fact that you know also that you have his love and support emotionally, Mm -hmm. psychologically, that does wonders because many people in our community write to me when they submit to enter the private Facebook group, many of them say they're looking to find a space where they can have support because many of them do not have that in their lives. Many of them mm-hmm. around them, their family and friends, do not understand their love for writing and do not understand the hardships and do not understand even the good times. And they're Absolutely. just like, well, what are you doing? Like, why are you wasting your time? Why are you yeah. not focusing <laughs> on your day job? And this is a universal theme. It's yeah. Whether it's like a... Yeah. Loneliness and and isolation, yeah. so that's why I'm thankful too. So I had to highlight that and give your husband props <laughs> for being there for yeah, you.
1: I'm very lucky to have him, and I'm yeah. sure
0: he's very lucky to have you too. I have no doubt about that. I'm sure you also inspire the hell out of him. There's no doubt there. Moving along from that, it's just crazy to me also how mindset can have a huge difference in approaching. Like when I came across that same LitHub article, I was like, oh yeah. It suddenly when you read it, you're like, holy shit. Yeah. If you see it like a numbers game, it helps to remove more of the emotions from it where you start to see it like, okay, this is just part of the process. But again, mm-hmm. it's still difficult. So do you mind going into the mindset of it? Where, where, where was that point? I know you say it's still difficult. It still hurts the rejections. I mean, we're all human. It still hurts, but is there something that you did along the way where something clicked, whether subconsciously or consciously, or maybe a conversation, whether you had with a friend or your husband or something yeah. just hit you and you're like, oh, right. I shouldn't take it too much to heart. These rejections. Was there a moment like that, that maybe you can pass on to our listeners and maybe they can also hold in their hearts if they're going through this process right now?
1: Yeah, I think for me, I mean, the big moment really was when that story that, you know, had been rejected 27 times mm-hmm, got accepted by Prairie sooner and then got a pushcart special mention. So, like, that was my moment. I was like, oh, like, you know, the whole time. And that was the the, the third short story I had ever written. And I was wow. convinced that like, I was like, oh, well, maybe it's just not that good. Um, and then I saw kind of how subjective it was um, and how much it depends on, like, the journal and the journal's needs and, like, things like that. Um, and in more recent um kind of i was at awp earlier this year, and I, I met Kwame Dawes, who's the amazing editor of The Prairie Schooner, and I was talking to him about it, and he was saying, look, you know, like, especially if you're writing sort of international fiction, or like stuff that isn't something that the average graduate student in in the US who's like reading the slush pile is familiar with, it's easy for them to just not connect to your story. Mm. Uh, so especially if like you're writing outside of certain cultural context, so you're writing kind of from a different, you know, the reality of it is you are going to connect to stories that reflect your experience better to a certain degree. So there is that. That's like another element that you can't control completely. That's true. Um, That's true. I didn't even think of that. And that was really helpful for me. And he was like, we reject so many stories that we think are amazing. And it's just a matter of fit or kind of what we need at the time or like length or what we're trying to achieve with that issue and so on. So that came very, very recently. That was actually just earlier this year. So I wouldn't say that. Yeah, it's a constant kind of grappling with how to deal with rejection. But I sort of gradually turned rejection into a motivating factor you know, whenever I got rejected by a journal, I would then go back out and kind of look at what journals were open and then I would submit again. So whenever I got rejected or I felt down about my writing or I felt like it wasn't going anywhere, I would try and do something productive for it, which in in my case usually is like making submissions or editing a new story or sending it even to a friend and saying like, hey, you know, I want to hear your thoughts on this piece. Like it's been getting a lot of rejections. Like what do you think? That kind of thing. So kind of not yeah letting yourself feel sad because like obviously it is like like you say we're all human and like it's unhealthy to repress that as well but at the same time once you're done feeling sad try to do something productive with it take that feeling of dissatisfaction and turn it towards something that will help you be on your way to help you get further down along the path
0: oh you're oh that's so good have you ever thought of like speaking as like a motivational speaker (laughs) i'm not even kidding (laughs) The way you're talking about your experience, but you also inject how you can take those experiences to make it productive and you phrase it in a way that it allows us to really absorb and understand. This is something that you should really think about too. just add that to your resume, like being a speaker, (laughs) truly motivational speaker. I'm not kidding. Like in the future, if I ever gather like a conference, I'm like, I'm not even kidding. I would love to invite you to speak. I would love to speak. like that would be really wonderful because the writing journey, right? I, feel, I see it as a very holistic process. It's not just craft. And I get it. Like a lot of times we talk about craft and I started to realize throughout over 130 episodes, I was like, no, we're humans. We're humans expressing what's in our heart and what, what makes us human is like all the little pieces, right? And you need Mm -hmm. to also nurture the side that's hurting, that's feeling anxious and depressed and, and feeling down from rejections. How do, how do you go from there to leap forward and make it productive? And it's just a very holistic thing. And not just about craft is what (laughs) I'm realizing. And that's so important because it does something to your confidence you know, I see some of our listeners in our group and I, I love them all dearly. And I just see how it's like, when there's that mindset shift, it really makes a difference. It really does from pushing forward or stopping for years. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. I think you just need someone to tell you that you can do it. It's yes. just a that I'm at the missional program now and there's so many amazing, I mean, my cohort, it's literally, I feel so inadequate because like everyone's a genius um, <laughs> and I have friends here who have never submitted a story before and they have these like spreadsheets of places and they've done all the research and they, you know, they're like, oh, I know this journal like, likes that kind of story and this journal does this and like this agent does that, but they don't submit anything. and sometimes all it takes is kind of other people like your cohort mates or your friends saying like look I believe in your writing your Mm -hmm. writing is amazing send it out and like sure even if it gets rejected who cares you know it's like that's just part of the process and like just move on to the next thing and just keep going right and sometimes I know that's so difficult because like if you don't have like you say a lot of people in the community don't have that in real life and that can be difficult especially if your friends aren't writers themselves they don't understand it right they're like mm-hmm. oh you, they can be really good friends but they're just like oh you know what's the big deal it's just yeah. like you just got a rejection you know yeah. it's over it and they mean all the best and like you know they obviously love you but they just can't understand where you're coming from and it's really other writers who, who get that so i think your community is just yeah it's an amazing space and i've been part of like facebook groups and things like that as well and like, i've actually gotten a lot of community support from online spaces so
0: yeah that's oh, amazing i love that and also thank you for those kind words too i appreciate that yeah. this is very, oh, I, I'm i telling you just now, I was like, oh, not out of disgust. It's more like, oh, this is amazing. Like I'm like, oh, so <laughs> motivating. I literally was like, oh, so good. Keep going. Like, you know what I mean? So just, I need to translate that just in case it don't go through. Um, But mm-hmm. I think it's been a while since I've even had a chance to really touch on specifically the process of rejections. And that's something a lot of people have brought up in the community. I'm grateful and thankful that you gave me that opportunity to talk about. I would also love to ask you. You're so freaking accomplished, but so damn humble about it. It just blows my mind. Like you're getting it, like you're in all these programs, you're doing all this. So you got into Austin's Missioner Center for Writers. That's the one that went through the 27 rejections. That story got you yep. noticed for getting into that program. I admire you because even though you you have your freaking book, like you have a book that's coming out in July. Like, first of all, early congratulations. This is so exciting. But yet you still... Throw yourself in these programs to improve yourself and you still want to learn. And I think that's so freaking admirable. There's so many people that I bumped into. And I'm going to use some acting as an example again, because that's more of my background. I don't really have much writing experience, but it's more so acting. So I see it's very similar though, where I've seen actors who never really got trained, right? And then they get like one or two wonderful shows and then they just kind of like, all right, I can (laughs) ride the wave and just coast along and just, Mm -hmm. you know, blow my money on this, that, this, that. And that's it. Meanwhile, I've been lucky enough to meet really dear friends of mine. They are consistently working, right? They book multiple Mm -hmm. different shows constantly yet in between shows, they will throw themselves into class to exercise yep. that muscle and keep going, keep going. And they'll get torn down in front of so many of the classmates by their teachers. Cause obviously the teachers want them to improve. They don't care. Yep. They keep getting teared down and they are welcoming it. You know, if they're normally killing it in drama, they'll throw themselves in comedy, even though it scares the crap out of them. Most people are afraid of improv, right? But they mm-hmm. do it. I can see how even me, like I would be like, oh God, people have seen my work before and then they see me trying something new, well, they think yeah. like, wow, why did this girl even book in the first place? She doesn't even deserve <laughs> to like, this girl sucks. Like, you know what I mean? Like, why is she getting on the roles when I've trained much longer than her and I do so much, you know what I mean? So those are like thoughts that have run through my head. And then when I met my friends who've been in this industry so much longer, they don't give two craps. They've won awards and they still go and they don't care. They don't care. Mm -hmm. They'll fall on their face because they know at the end of the day, they're going to learn. And they've inspired me to want to push myself further and learn more. And that's why I also admire people like that. Like you, you're accomplished. You have your book coming out. You still throw yourself in these courses, in these programs, because you want to continue learning. You want to continue pushing yourself after admiring you about that. How is that? Experience been like for you, and what was that decision like knowing that you were going to get this published yet you still chose to push yourself further? What was that decision process like?
1: Well, I guess it was part of it was also, well, one, what you just said that's really inspiring to me. You know, I love being around people who always push themselves and mm-hmm. like kind of throw themselves into new situations and yeah like you say always trying to learn something new and like that yeah. that thing about like improv versus drama it's very similar to like how the missional program works because you have to come in with a primary genre so like for me that's fiction right. and a secondary genre and you can take classes across all genres so i'm actually going to be in a poetry workshop <gasps> next semester. oh my gosh i'm never... so excited but that's also so scary right yes it's terrifying that's exactly how i feel so this is what you were saying about falling flat in a face i don't write poetry you know i'm a very like literal person so in many ways i feel like poetry is like diametrically opposed to my personality but i feel like i can learn so much from it because when i read the work of, like poets that I might, i'm like oh my god they're doing something with language that i could never do and i want to learn how to do that and i want to be around them so yeah thank you for that encouragement because i'm still kind of thinking maybe no, I should drop thank of- you, <laughs>
0: no. are, you j- are you joking me thank you like seriously <laughs> thank you also for even Going into detail about that too, because in case any yeah. of our listeners who are going through programs like that now they hear mm-hmm. what you originally were kind of fearful of, but you're still going head on. You see that yeah. bull, and you're like going straight for it. <laughs> yeah, like you are like I'm, head I'm on, on. I'm and shaking.
1: <laughs> yeah. I'm no, that's an, listen. <laughs> I
0: imagine you like it's like you're not even dipping your toe in that leg girl. You just went <laughs> for that ocean, and you went head first. That would make me so nervous because yeah. I'm I've never done any of these programs before. But I assume, do you sit in the class? Like, are you reading out loud? Like how does that work? Yeah.
1: yeah. <gasps> oh. So with fiction, what happens is you, you submit it with But I think for poetry, you're right. I think you actually do need to read your work in class. Oh I've never been in a poetry class before, so I have no idea. But that's what I But yes, on your original question, part of it was timing. I've been in the corporate job for like six years and I was at the point where I was like okay look you know my writing I feel like it's it's getting better I'm still committed to it after like four years and I want to go to the next level and so I was researching MFA programs even before any of the book stuff happened and I was really drawn to like the programs in the US because they're fully funded and firstly the teachers are amazing so like a lot of the writers whom I deeply respect and admire were professors at these programs so I was like oh my god I get to study with like you know admissions Elizabeth McCracken <laughs> or like people like that and then secondly it's a crazy opportunity essentially many of these programs they fund your tuition and they give you a stipend so it's similar to like a PhD kind of setup where you are essentially sponsored to do the degree which is just an amazing opportunity like regardless of what stage in your career you're in and at that point I didn't have a book out yet so I knew you know kind of years before even I think like I had planned to apply like two years before I actually applied. So it was something that I had always wanted to do. And I've been working on my own for so long because I pretty much just like, you know, I was writing just by myself and my husband was reading my stuff. Um, and he's a great workshop partner. And I, I actually credit a lot of my improvement to him because he's quite brutal, but also kind. Is he so a writer up. too? He's not, he's an engineer. It's really strange. The, why is he so, Why are you
0: both such like, you <laughs> guys are like couple goals. Why are you both so freaking
1: smart? What is wrong with you both? <laughs> movies so i think that might be it so he has a good sense of storytelling even though he's not like Incredible. yeah he's not line. um but you know i was at the point i was like look i've been doing this on my own for so long um and so many of the writers that like i respect have been to these mfa programs like let me check that out mm-hmm. and i started doing the research and you know That's- saw that it was a fantastic opportunity so i applied in like november 2016 and then i got in march 2017 and then i sold my book in june 2017 so essentially it all happened at the same time it wasn't like once I sold my book, I was like, well, I'm not going to go to the program anymore because I was obviously over the moon and like deliriously happy. But it felt more like a it's something that was incidental rather than, you know, it didn't change the fact that I wanted to get better at writing. It wasn't like, oh, I've sold my book, therefore now my writing is better because it's the same. Like my writing is still at the same level that it was as when I applied for the program. It's just that now I've gotten the external validation for it. It was almost like two different things in my head and it didn't affect my decision at all. So like when I got into Missioner, I mean, I was like, oh my God, that's just, yeah, it is literally a dream come true. And in a way, I mean, getting the book deal is amazing because you're like, yes, I have a book deal, like, you know, the publishing industry recognizes me and so on. But that's more of like a, how do I explain this? It's different from getting into a program where it feels like you're being given an opportunity, Mm. which is something that you take with you forever. Whereas, you know, you get a book deal and that's like a one off thing and then you have to get the next book deal right but if you get into a program then it's like someone is investing in your That's true. You know- writing your your, your artistry art. yeah definitely yeah and like you know publishers are investing in us as well but it's it's different because they're not like helping you improve right you publish the book and then you go off and you like do the next book by yourself um, but if you get into a program then you have this amazing platform and like community and also like great faculty that you can learn from and I, I can say like one year in I already feel like my writing has improved so much <gasps> which is oh fantastic. I'm so excited so, so, really nerve-wracking because then I'm like oh I can see all the flaws in the book that I oh, just no! published <gasps> never I even thought of that. that are you able to go back or are you like afraid to even read
0: through your debut I,
1: I cannot read it <laughs> <laughs> I'm done. well firstly I've read it like 17 times because I had to do like you know, several rounds of edits with both the UK and the US. And then I was doing copy edits and I was doing proofreading. So I'm like, I've read it so many times. I'm completely word blind on it. And I just don't trust my judgment anymore. And I'm at the point where I'm so, I can pretty much like anticipate every sentence. So it's just, I'm not a reader for the book anymore.
0: Oh, wow. You know what? That's such a great point. I never even thought of that. And you know what? It's getting me really excited for what? Your second book that you're going to end up working on in the near future, because I would love to see the differences too. And that's so exciting <gasps> Rachel, you are so freaking inspiring. You know that? Like, I just, I can't with you. And I'm truly so grateful for this opportunity to speak with you and just to get to chat. And if there's any quick tips that you could have before we move on to the next question uh, for the listeners on how they can find the program that's right for them, because it seems like you just struggled, mm-hmm. And I know you said you did r- your research. You saw a lot of people that you admire are there, right? So mm-hmm. is there any quick tips they could give them, whether that's researching, you know, see like, you know, Look up your favorite authors, see where they're teaching or where they've gone.
1: Firstly, I would say the most important thing to me was, and a lot of people recommend this, is like, don't go into debt. To, to go to a program. I mean, it's if you go to a place where that's charging you like, you know, $40,000 a year in tuition to yes. study creative writing, that's just... I mean, maybe you're like independently wealthy and that's fine and then, right. you know, everyone makes their own choices but right. um, if you're like an average person, I just think it really it makes no sense to kind of like put yourself under that sort of financial strain so try to find a program and there are plenty of them even like, not the... They're like, the you know, the, the big names and the ones you hear about but they're also just like tons of really solid programs um, at other universities where you know, they'll fully fund your tuition and like give you a a moderate stipend and like you would have to like do a bit of teaching or like you work for the editor, the the lit journal or something like that. So that's Um, one, I think, you know, the big kind of, yeah. Um, message is like try to find a program that will sponsor you that will you know support you through it financially um and then secondly in terms of kind of what sort of program to go to um there are a few different things to think about one is whether you want to do a sort of more studio program which is like really about um just workshop um doing you know spending a lot of time on writing or more academic programs so there's some programs where you have to take like classes in english literature for example Mm. there's a bit more in common with like an english master's degree and some people want to do that because that kind of, you know, they see it as like part of broadening, you know, their knowledge about writing in general and like, yeah, but other people just want to focus on the writing itself. So kind of figure out which you want to do. Um, and like each program is different. So that was kind of one of my considerations. Um, and then like you said, um, yeah. So like people looking at the faculty, people whom, you know, you want to work with people whose work you admire, but at the same time, like talk to current students, because one of the things is, you know, even if you love someone's work, they might not necessarily be the right teacher for you. Cause everyone mm. has like, even if you don't know someone's work, they might be an amazing teacher, you know? Yes. So, and then you'd get to discover their work. Well, you know, when you're in their class, it's like on one hand look for people that you recognize, but on the other hand don't discount the names that you don't recognize, and just try to learn as much as you can about like the culture of the program, like, you know what the pedagogy is like, how involved professors are with their students, work whether they're like open to reading your stuff outside of class, whether they a mentorship and like, you know, or are they like super stressed out because they are 20 students who are fighting for their time and the program's underfunded and so on. So there are all of these like academic kind of yeah logistical considerations, I guess. Okay, last tip, I'll stop. I lo- <laughs> no, I love this. Thank you so much. Like, you know, the admissions rates are so low. I don't even know. I think it's like one to 5% or something like that. What? Um, and it, it's quite difficult to get in. And a lot of people just, back to our, our conversation about rejection, you know, there are tons of people who apply like, you know, two or three years in a row before getting in. And that's completely normal. So like, don't give up. One, spread your net pretty wide if you can afford the admissions fees because like you have to pay like the application fee, but sometimes Mm -hmm. you can get waivers. So like look up fee waivers, one. Two, try to apply to as many schools as possible. I think usually people recommend like 10 to 13. And then if you don't get in, apply again. There are a number of people at Missioner who didn't get in the first year. You know, there's someone in our program who didn't get into any MFA programs her first year of applying. Second year, she got into Missioner. She just sold her book for $2 million. <gasps> but it's really are you joking <laughs> i'm not joking it's if there's a story for like you know don't give up after you get rejected that is the story oh my um, god! so yeah there are like lots of people who don't get into programs the first year the second year and then they get into like iowa or somewhere the, the third year so again don't give up and just keep trying keep improving and like keep applying
0: incredible rachel that was so freaking good thank you so much
1: i actually have a blog post on applying to mfa program which you can link as well if people want to know more i would love to yeah, totally. I've done so much research on it. And I'm so like, I have so many opinions on them. So like, it's something that I want to share. Can you send that? To, is there a direct link that you can send to me yes. as
0: well? Yes, yep. yes. I'm going to have that linked on your show notes page. Now, I want to jump in and also talk about Suicide Club. And could you please give us a snapshot of what
1: Suicide Club is in your own words? Yeah, definitely. So Suicide Club, it's a literally dystopian novel. And it's set in near future New York where life expectancies average three hundred years, the people have become obsessed with immortality. I guess it's a dystopian novel. It's set in this kind of dystopian world and it talks about things like the commodification of healthcare and like it has, you know, things like organ trading in it and like cryogenic freezing and all of this kind of cool world building stuff. But also, to me, I mean it's a story that at its heart is about family and female friendship. And it follows the main character, Lee, who is kind of on track for immortality because she's a lifer. She's like what they consider to be genetically perfect. She does everything right. She like hits all of her goals. She like exercises. She does slow juicing, like everything. And she's on track to become an immortal. Her life is essentially turned upside down when one day she sees her estranged father on the sidewalk and he is someone who doesn't believe in this this whole immortality enterprise. And through him She gets drawn into this underground society known as the Suicide Club, which essentially is a group of powerful, well-connected individuals who disagree with everything that society has come to stand for, and they want to live and end their lives on their own terms. So that's kind of the no-spoiler setup. (laughs) Gotcha. Okay, I love that setup. I would love to really go into
0: what was the inspiration about this. My listeners, they're very aware of current events and everything, so I do want to touch on this a little bit because... There have been some things that have happened recently with Anthony Bourdain, for example. I loved what you were trying to do and what you've set up for the story. And it's about living your life to the best of its ability. So could you go into that more,
1: go beyond the title as well? Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've actually been asked about that on Twitter very politely and very kindly, right. not confrontationally, to say more about what the role that suicide has to play in the book. And I would just like to say that, you know, it is a speculative novel. It's set in a world where immortality is within our grasp. The basic assumption of the book is that people have become obsessed with living forever and controlling every aspect of their lives. Um, And I think that really unfortunate and terrible outcome of that is this opposing position, right? Mm -hmm. So you have, on one hand, the people who want to control everything, play God, and kind of live forever. And on the other hand, the rebel organization. There's on the side of being able to control both your life as well as your death, they don't want to live forever. So it's not set in our world. It's not advocating for a suicide at all. And eventually the protagonist chooses, you know, the middle way. She doesn't choose either one or the other. The context is that it is kind of this science fiction, fictional setup. But yeah, totally realise the sort of sensitivity of the title, especially with the current events. I know. And yeah, it's something that I'm ready to like get questions on, unfortunately. And I wish that, obviously, I never mean for it to be something that is encouraging or like something that is insensitive towards sort of mental health issues and suicide in the real world versus in a science fictional world.
0: Yes. And also there's something that I, I saw a YouTube video of you being interviewed and I loved what you said, truly got to the heart of the story. And I really, in the end was like, you know, it's not even about suicide really at all. It's about the quality and not quantity of life. So could you go into that a little bit more too?
1: yeah so i mean how i came to write the book was essentially i've always been obsessed morbidly i guess with death and loss in some way i yeah I, I lost my dad at a pretty young age and, he lost and it wasn't like you know and then kind of last year he passed away um I'm but sorry. essentially you know kind of my life has been characterized by loss in many ways um so it's something that i've always kind of you know i've i've thought a lot about from a young age I think all of us have that feeling of, you know, when you're a kid and you think, oh, my God, my parents are going to die. Um, and it like keeps you up at night and you're absolutely terrifying. Like, wait, what is death? Right. So I guess I've always been obsessed with the notion of my own death and like that of my loved ones. And that's where the question came from. You know, what if we could live forever, especially nowadays when like you see, you know, medical technology advancing so rapidly and you have like Silicon Valley billionaires. <laughs> All of their plans to hack death and whatnot. So it seems increasingly likely that eventually, at some point, we will be able to, you know, extend our lifespan significantly. So I I just started thinking about, okay, what if we could live forever? Like, what if you didn't have to die? And that really began the idea for Suicide Club. And I guess the more I thought about it, the more I realized, like, no, like obviously, living forever would be pretty awful, especially if you take into account kind of so many other things about our world, because it's not like it's not like if you live forever, everything would be perfect, right? Lots of the issues that still exist today would just be exacerbated. So things like income inequality, or like in the case of the book, sort of healthcare inequality, kind of determining how you allocate healthcare resources, like who would be able to live forever, who wouldn't be able to live forever. And also on a more philosophical level, what living forever would do to how we think about life. So if you don't have death as kind of this you know, final thing that everyone goes through, and if our lives were able to be extended indefinitely, how would that affect how we make meaning of our lives and our existences and how we relate to one another, right? What it does to our relationships. So then the book became like about pretty much all of them. You know, I realized that a lot of this fear of death or like this kind of, you know, wanting to live forever on my own heart came from kind of a fear of loss and like a need to sort of control, right? So like trying to control for you, not being able to face your own mortality and trying to control it You know, and thinking like, oh, if I do everything right, then I'm going to be healthy. I'm going to live so on everything. But yeah, like I said in that interview, you might remember you can eat all the kale you want and you're probably still going to. So yeah, yeah. um, so that kind of was the the genesis of the idea for the world. I love that you went into that. How was the writing process
0: for that? Was that were there a few scenes where you're like, oh, God, I can't make it past this chapter like this is hard. Mm -hmm. I don't know where to go right now. How was that like?
1: Yeah, it was. I don't write with an outline, so that was definitely difficult. I think I would not recommend it, but <laughs> I think I must have thrown out about. I, I think in total, I would have written about 160,000 words. And I think, and the book ended up being like 90,000 words, right? So I threw out wow. about half the number of words I wrote. And then also, amongst the words that I had written that made it into the book, I heavily rewrote probably about half of that. So it was a very inefficient kind of winding circuitous process and then in terms of like certain scenes that were hard to write i guess because it's quite a personal topic and it's called it's kind of a a father-daughter relationship story Mm -hmm. um yeah there were definitely things that like because they were drawn from like my personal experience were like more emotional like more difficult to write
0: was it like something where it required i'm not even sure like how the research process was for—is it more like writing from the heart? But if there was a research process, is this is something that you, you kind of had to like in a way interview family members to kind of get more content or inspiration. Was there any of that involved?
1: Mm, no, it okay, was so it's it's very, drawn from uh, you. Yeah, yeah, okay. it's drawn from me. Yeah. Okay, and wow. I guess the research was more kind of technological because there's quite a lot of wall building and stuff like that. I didn't do heavy research before I wrote it. I guess. I had always been doing research because I'd always been interested in these topics. So like I'd read about, you know, like end of life care. Um, so like Atul Gawande's, um, book was amazing on that. Um, you know, I read a number of like, memoirs and like things like that. And also like I'd always been interested in like transhumanism and stuff like that. So even though I hadn't done like active research for the book before starting it, I've read things over the years that that eventually fed it.
0: You just said something that also inspired another question. How did you go from having like a blank page and then creating this world, which is basically like our world, but you're throwing in those like, you know, the average lifespan of three hundred years and all of these technologies. So how was that like for you? Was there a craft book that you referred to about world building or was it also from other books that you were reading where you're like, Ooh, this is fantastic at world building. I'm going to kind of like emulate this.
1: I think, yeah, it was more that, I think it was more that, I mean, I like reading speculative fiction, so it was something I was inspired by like the books that I had read that, that I love. So like books like The Handmaid's Tale, that's one yes. that like, I yeah. read and I like, really loved. Brave New World and, you know, things like Kazuo Ishiguro's Never Let Me Go. And yeah, so there are all books that I read and love kind of like they all do world building in slightly different ways. And I think, yeah, I was kind of cobbled together the things that I like and like tried to do the same. You are so incredible. I can't believe you basically self-taught yourself
0: writing this book. (laughs) It just blows my mind. Um, So I'm going to start wrapping it up here. What are small manageable steps that you'd advise our writers to take every week
1: towards accomplishing their writing goals? Um, well, every writer is different. So I don't want to say like, you know, write every day. Cause like there's a, you know, there's kind of the common wisdom, like, Oh, you need to write every day. And like, obviously not everyone's lives allow for that. Um, but I would say like find the routine that works for you and like try to stick to it. And like, there's a really fine balance between pushing yourself through discomfort and not giving up, but also like being kind to yourself and like knowing when it's not working and like, kind of stepping back and letting yourself have the time and space to refuel before you go back to writing. So for me, what works, I I can share what works for me, but like, you know, don't get discouraged if like you've tried this and it doesn't work for you because everyone's (laughs) different. Um, But for me, what helps is if I do like a little bit every day. So when I was working a full-time job, what I would do is I get up at like 6am and I spend one hour writing before work and I try to do 500 words, which it doesn't sound like a lot. But if you consistently do the 500 words every day, you get to like a full draft in, you know, half a year I mm-hmm. like well, I don't it in my head but anyway you get that so the and that's very much like my I guess the way my mind works I work better when you do like small consistent steps rather than like big bursts of creativity but some people work better with big bursts of creativity so I guess it really depends on kind of what works best for you um and like don't beat yourself up over like you know whether like some famous writer said you need to do xyz and like I tried it and it didn't work for me you know it doesn't mean like oh you can't write it just Mm -hmm. means you work differently that's all
0: Yes. Love that. That's a great reminder and permission to listeners. Also, so the second to last question I'd love to ask is, do you have any query tips uh, from your own experience that you felt was helpful? Or maybe that you're like, if I could do this
1: again and I could give my younger self advice, I would have gone this route. It's a tough one. I guess I... I would say, like, kind of do your research and aim high. But essentially, it's easy to, like, say that, oh, you can't get that agent and there's no point submitting to them, even if they're, like, your dream agent. But, like, you have absolutely nothing to lose. So, like, just do it in rounds and, like, aim as high as you want, or as high as, you know, even higher than you think you can get. Mm, um, because I, I that. find that with myself, I have a lot of, like, imposter syndrome and I'm always like, well, you know, why am I even bothering submitting to them? Because they'll never even read it. And then my husband's like, no, you should just send it to them. Yes. And then he said to them, Oh, miraculously, you get response. So don't like self-sabotage and just like aim for the agents who represent the work that you love or like agents that you have for some reason, you know, you think like they would be a great advocate for your work. So the agent that I ended up with, I had been following her on Twitter, actually. And something that I really liked about her was like, she just had so much energy and really clear passion for the writers that she represented. So that was the thing that drew me to her and like got me to submit and um, to query her. Try to learn as much as you can about the agents. Everything's online so much these days that you can often find like interviews or like you can follow them on Twitter or you can even look at their Instagram and you know, do the whole like internet stalking thing and kind of get a grip on like what they're like, what they're interested in and then like you can really tailor your query letter so it's not just like a generic kind of, here's my novel, would you like to represent it? You know, it can be like, Oh, I saw In your interview, you said you really like fiction with an international band. And like my story is set in like Czechoslovakia, you know, something like that. So yes, it's really about like showing that you actually care about building a relationship with them and it's not just like you're trying to get your work represented so it's a two-way thing and showing that like you have done your research you're attentive to what they are actually looking for rather than like it being sort of just a, a random submission i think that really makes a difference because agents actually i mean they're human beings. It's like they they read like so many emails a day that if they see something that references something else that they care about they're gonna be like oh you know i'm gonna have a look at, at this one oh that was so good
0: all right now last and final question rachel you've been awesome how excited are you about
1: your tour coming up? Oh, I am absolutely terrified. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm so, yeah, one, I'm really worried about packing. I'm like, how am I going to pack for <laughs> I'm gonna be on the road? For like, And I, I made this awful, awful mistake. I signed up. I mean, not awful. It's, it's, but I'm very excited about it. But I signed up for these two writing conferences right before I go on tour. But essentially, it's like I'm leaving this Saturday and then I wait for two weeks and then I go on tour. So I added another two weeks to like being on the road. So I'm going to oh. have to pack for like six weeks of travel. Oh my gosh. But I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to have to do a lot of laundry, I guess. Well, here Here's the question.
0: Is the weather, do you think, going to be consistent? Because that, I think, if it's no. consistent, it's... Oh, it's all different weather?
1: No, it's all different. Oh God, I'm that's be, a pain. Like, I'll be on the East Coast here, and then I'll be in the UK. And like the UK is often a lot colder. And, yeah, so... No, it's okay. To- no,
0: that's going to be hectic. Cause I'm like, okay, if it's all gloomy and like cold, all right, it's okay. Just, just pack heavier, warmer clothes. But if it's hot, then it's humid, then switch to cold and then like drizzling. I'm like, oh my gosh, you got to pack like your whole entire house. I'm going to wish you lots of good luck on that. And I am also, can you let listeners know where your tour dates and locations are going to be posted? So for listeners listening in, please go visit Rachel and say, hi, stop by, where can they find your, is it on Twitter or, or
1: website? Um, they can find it on my website. So there's an events page which I update quite often, and there you have all the details and like times, addresses, and everything. And I'll be in the UK and in the US, I'll actually be in Providence, um, New York, Austin, Texas, uh, San Francisco, and Seattle. So if oh, you're in any nice. of those cities, yeah, I'd love to meet. Any those are of you. great cities, by
0: the way. Congratulations. Those are awesome oh. cities. Um, yeah. I- been to lots of them. So I'm excited. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited for you too. You have to take lots of pictures for memories. Yeah. I'm, I'm really pumped for you. So, uh, why don't you let, uh, listeners know where to find you
1: on social media? Yes. So I am, um, I'm on, pretty much all social media platforms <laughs> unfortunately i keep trying to get off but it doesn't work <laughs> um, but i'm probably most active on twitter and you can find me at rachel hang qp so that's q for quebec p for poland and it's the same handle for oh wait no actually on twitter i'm rachel hang writes but everything's on my website so if you go to rachelhangqp.com you'll be able to link to all my social media from there
0: and that wraps up our episode with rachel hang Rachel, you are truly one of the most genuine and generous humans I've met through this podcast. Thank you so much for your time and such a lovely chat. Storytellers, thank you so much for hanging out and listening in as always. Please be sure to follow Rachel on Twitter. And as a reminder, she's over at twitter.com slash rachelhangqp. You can find 88 Cups of Tea on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Come say hi and write a review about us at Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts because from what I hear, the more listeners we have subscribed and write a review, the better it is for us to reach new listeners, which is so helpful for the show and for anyone who's looking for inspiration. As mentioned at the very top of this episode, if you'd love to gift a financial contribution to keep the show strong, head over to 88 cupsofteacom slash support. Have a wonderful and super productive rest of your week and I'll catch you next Thursday. Hey guys, it's me again. Thanks so much for listening in on 88 Cups of Tea. Go create something magical today and I'll catch you in the next episode. Bye.